And one of the things during that race that I really learned was your mind will push you further than your body will take you. The other consideration here is that when we drive up carbohydrates, for every gram of carbohydrate your body stores as glycogen, you're gonna store an extra three grams of water. And that's not a good strategy because remember, weight doesn't equal fat gain. Weight is just the total mass of our body. It doesn't actually categorize what that weight is made up of. And we may be sacrificing performance just to try and see the scales a little lighter. There's no, no reason to avoid carbohydrate feedings in the hour before exercise. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Complete Performance Podcast with your host, Dr. Josh Williamson. This is an episode that is highly requested. I put out on social media, what topics would you like covered? And a large amount of people wanted to delve into not just nutrition for endurance performance, but endurance performance as a whole. And the list got longer and longer and longer. I tried to narrow this down to things from my own knowledge, things from my experience of coaching people, and then my own personal experience of doing endurance events. And so I want to cover the nutrition elements, some training considerations, any prep work, and then just any miscellaneous things that I have found to be useful or questions that you've actually had. So I've got a list. I'm going to try and make it through it all. This will probably turn into a monster episode, but hopefully there's plenty of value in it. There's plenty of golden nuggets that you can take away to improve your performance in any sort of endurance event that you've got coming up. So let's delve in and get started. The first thing I want to do is give you a bit of background. At this stage, you probably know that I work with a lot of athletes from grassroots level right through to Olympic, Commonwealth, World Championship athletes. And those sports range vastly. When we come to the endurance side, there's been cyclists, Ironman triathletes, there's been trail runners, ultra marathon runners. And so I'm gonna try and encompass all of the things that I've learned from those individuals, tie that in with the theory and give you some practical advice. Now, my own personal experience with endurance running, let me take you back a number of years now. This is going back maybe 15 years or so. I get into bodybuilding. That was my thing. I wanted to learn how to put on muscle because I was very, very aesthetic driven, very visual driven. Thought that I would gain a lot from that and catered my training and my nutrition for that. And then one day someone asked me, Josh, do you want to run a half marathon? It's going to be for charity. I thought, sure, it's only 13 miles. No problem. It was four weeks away. My plan was, I could run two miles this week. I'll run six miles next week. I'll run eight or nine miles a week after, and then I'll run the half on the fourth week. Turns out it was pretty far. (laughs) I underestimated what it's like to run a half marathon. And what I remember from that race is the last two mile was absolute hell. I struggled. I really, really struggled to the point where I just remember coming down the finish straight, people were gathering around the finish line and I was sitting buckled over, hands on my knees, thinking, you can cheer all you want. I can't put one foot in front of the other. And at the end of that, I said, I'm never doing that again. Now, bear in mind, I came from an athletics background. I was a 400 meter sprinter. And I said, I am never running again. This is is ruined my experience of running. Fast forward up till 2018. And I started delving into a lot of the work that Ross Edgley will be doing. And anyone who's familiar with Ross's work will know that he is just a freak. Endurance events, strength events, heel trot. And then he was the first person to swim around Great Britain. And delving into his stuff, I was like, you know what? This trail stuff that he's doing is pretty interesting. Maybe you want to give that a go. And I started looking at other trail runners and ultra marathon runners, and no way was I running a 50 or 100 mile race. 
But I thought, I don't really want to do a road marathon. I've done a road half marathon before. It was horrendous. <laughs> it was boring. Give me something with a little more excitement. And so I entered into a trail marathon then. Now, bear in mind this time, I had a lot of knowledge around nutrition. I had a lot of knowledge around your training. And I even gave myself prep time. I was thinking I gave myself 16 weeks to get ready for this marathon. And I loved it. It wasn't quite as much time as I needed. I didn't have the the I didn't have enough time on the actual mountains, on the trails, just to build up that that stamina and being on the feet for that long. But it is something that I finished. I made it to the end, and I absolutely loved the experience. And at some stage, I I would really like to do something like that again. But that gives you two experiences of my own personal journey with the endurance world. And I share those for a number of reasons because one of the very first things that I learned within nutrition, and I, I've spoken about this before with, with other guests, is that you can know everything that you want inside a book, but the book doesn't always translate into what actually happens. And that's what I found out when it came to coaching people. And I remember a client, probably one of my very first clients, had said, I'm doing a trail marathon. It's an ultra distance. It's a hundred mile. I have to finish it within 24 hours. And it's over the Wicklow Mountains. And I thought, this is easy. I've got my master's in nutrition. This would be simple. You're doing this amount of hours work. Here's the amount of carbs you need. Just go and do it. And how naive was I? Because <laughs> it does not work like that. From then, thankfully, I've learned a lot. And I've learned a lot from speaking with people who do endurance events regularly, finding out what actually works best with their body, but then my own personal experience from doing events as well. What is it that I need an athlete to do? And then how can we make that practically feasible on the day? And that's what I want to share with you today. One of the things that I want to share with you firstly, though, is that I've heard this a couple of times and I think it's a bit of a, it can be a bit of a naive statement, but I also really appreciate the sentiment of it. One of the things that I hear a lot within the endurance space is, it all comes down to mental strength. And anyone who's a fan of David Goggins and any of those characters will sort of buy into that. Now, I guess I see both sides, because when I was doing the trail marathon, 13, 14 mile in, I was thinking to myself, I physically don't know if I can do another 13 mile here. Now luckily I was running with someone who's a very experienced marathon runner and he helped me through, you know, he kept saying encouraging words, he kept saying, you know, don't worry, don't look at the distance in front, just look at my feet and I'll stay a couple of feet in front of you and just focus on looking at my heels. So I kept my head down for miles and we kept going up and down the mountains and that really did help and one of the things during that race that I really learned was your mind will push you further than your body will take you that your body's going to be uncomfortable it's going to be sore it's going to hurt but if you can keep telling yourself to put one foot in front of the other you will get there because unless it is something very debilitating and I guess this is where the other the other side of the argument is is that it's not all down to mental strength. There, There is a physical element to this. We have to do the prep work. Our body has to be capable and robust enough to get through these distances that we're putting our body through. You can't just say to someone who's never ran a marathon before and hasn't done any training, go out and run a marathon. It doesn't matter how mentally strong you are, your body will break down at some stage. The way that I see it, it has to be hand in hand. There has to be a nutrition element. We have to have a proper training program. We have to do all the prep work. We have to do the hard stuff. But there's also the mental side. But each of those can't work independently. You can't have this really strong mental strength without the physical capability to back it up because your body will break down. But on the same side, you can't have someone who's super conditioned, someone who has ticked all the boxes when it comes to nutrition and then doesn't actually have the mental fortitude to push themselves when their body gets uncomfortable because it will happen 
you know, between 40 and 70% of people who start running will get some form of injury within the first three months. And it's usually some form of lower body injury or niggle within the first three months. So pushing a body this far is going to be uncomfortable. We are going to pick up niggles. There is going to be pain and discomfort. And we do need some sort of mental resilience to push us through. But it can't be all down to mental strength. Because if we don't have the actual physical capability, mental strength won't get you anywhere. And so how do we actually prep the body? And this is what we're going to delve into. I want to spend some time on nutrition, some time training, onto the prep work, and then finish off with some miscellaneous points that a number of you may be asked about. Let's delve into nutrition first. The first thing and the most important point that I want to make clear here is practice, practice, practice. Anything I say to you in this podcast, don't go out in your next race and say, Josh said this is the best thing to do. I'm going to do it in race day and then wonder why you have to do a Paul Radcliffe at the side of the road. You would not buy a brand new pair of trainers and put them on on a race day without trialing them out first in training, without breaking them in. So please don't do it with nutrition either. The first thing I find with pretty much every endurance athlete is they just don't eat enough. that's, That's the simple line of it. And the way that I always explain this to people is that we have certain physiological demands. The physiological demands of endurance sport is essentially driving from your house 300 miles down the road. The more work that you do, the more miles that you drive, the more fuel it requires to get you there. Yes, you could leave the journey at, at a quarter tank, but you're going to have to refill more often. You're going to come to a stop more often. If you if you start with a bigger tank of fuel that's topped up, you're going to get further without fuel. And this is the number one thing that I always do is massively increase, especially the carbohydrate content of someone's diet. Because when it comes to performance, when it comes to endurance, your muscle glycogen, your blood glucose are the most important substrates for the contracting muscle. And a lot of the fatigue that we get from prolonged exercise is associated with muscle glycogen depletion and reduced blood glucose concentrations. So therefore, it seems important that by having a pre or a high pre-exercise muscle and liver glycogen concentration seems to be really important for optimal performance. Now, it's not the only thing, as you'll find out as we delve in here, but it does seem to be really, really important. We'll not delve into the actual specifics of how you should lay that out because they has been covered in different episodes and I've certainly covered a lot of this stuff on social media but I want to focus specifically on some of the points that comes up within endurance circles. The first thing when you talk about endurance even when you talk about team sports now one of the things that comes up very often is carbohydrate loading. Should I load carbohydrates in the day or days leading up to my event? Now this has been summarized way back in the 90s and despite being you know 20 25 years old a lot of the knowledge is still up to date the basic premise of carbohydrate loading is that we can super compensate our storage of fuel so unlike your unlike your car that has a set capacity for how much fuel is in it you know you can only fill it up to the top and then it stops our body becomes very adaptable depending on our food, depending on our training, and we can push that slightly higher. So imagine giving your fuel tank an extra five or 10 liters leading up to a race. So that's what we talk about super compensation, giving it a little bit extra. And the belief was is that we could improve the storage of your glycogen, and that would then in turn improve your performance compared to if you were doing a low or normal carbohydrate diet. Now, how much does it improve it by? This is a difficulty when it comes to research because they use so much different designs, but generally somewhere between two and 4%, especially in, in any events that last over 90 minutes. So this is why it may not be useful for the likes of team-based sports because you don't have that consistent effort for 90 minutes or more. But certainly if you're doing a marathon, even a half marathon, depending on y- your, your level, ultras, triathlons, cycling events, 
all of that might be beneficial here. There doesn't seem to be meaningful difference, a meaningful performance benefit of a supercompensated muscle or supercompensated individual when the exercise duration is less than 90 minutes. The general traditional model is that we try and taper down our training and we ramp up our carbohydrates. Other people will try and deplete the muscle first, so they do a lot of low days, low carbohydrate days, and in very, very high days. There doesn't seem to be too much difference between the two, but I think we've came to the conclusion now that there are there's a there's a very simple way of doing it, which is that our training has to naturally taper coming into some sort of race because we're trying to peak for that performance. The biggest mistake that endurance athletes make is that they just don't eat enough carbohydrate in the first place. So we need to push them up right off the bat. If that's 12 weeks out, if that's 16 weeks out. In terms of where they should be, I don't really like giving figures, but if you were to take your body weight in kilos, multiply it by 5 to 10, that will give you an average range of where you should sort of be. If your training volumes are higher, if you're sitting at 8 to 10 hours of training a week, you're going to push towards 10 to 12 grams of kilo per day of carbohydrate. If you're slightly less, you might need to be down towards that 5 to 7 range. But when we push higher in those carbohydrates, that seems to be enough for it. And then a 24 to 48 hour carb load of just slightly more than that tends to be the optimal approach. We don't need to deplete. We don't need to do a low carb diet beforehand. All we do is taper off the training, keep the carbohydrate at its daily requirement based on the activity that we're doing, and then one, two, three days prior, increase it by say 50 to 100 grams of carbohydrate. It comes back to the whole thing that people think more is better. More carbohydrates means better performance, and that's just not the case. It doesn't always result in better performances. The other consideration here is that when we drive up carbohydrates, for every gram of carbohydrate your body stores as glycogen, you're going to store an extra three grams of water. And this is why weight fluctuations happen all the time, whether you're in fat loss circles or whether you're in performance circles. One gram of carbohydrate stores three grams of water. If you're storing 500 grams of carbohydrate, there is an extra kilo and a half. There's two kilo alone that's just made up of, let's say, fuel. And that may not be desirable in some cases. Now, that's not the case for, because I've had this before, especially in cycling cycling circles, where they think, well, I don't want to increase my carbohydrate and I want to keep my water low because I want to be two or three kilos lighter if I know that I have a very mountain or hill stage race coming up. And that's not a good strategy because remember, weight doesn't equal fat gain. Weight is just the total mass of our body. It doesn't actually categorize what that weight is made up of. And we may be sacrificing performance just to try and see the scales a little lighter. So that's carbohydrate loading. It is very individual. There's some evidence for positive effects and more carbs aren't necessarily better. What about carb timing then? Carbohydrate timing is an interesting one. Now we're specifically talking about the 60 minutes before an event, 60 minutes before training. Generally the rule that I have is that we have a big meal somewhere two to five hours before exercise, before an event. Because we know that that can have a positive effect on performance. There was some talk that if we have carbohydrate 30 to 60 minutes before exercise, then that can actually have a negative effect. Where this came from, this was way back, late 70s, early 80s research, where the natural response of carbohydrate consumption is that we get an increase in blood blood sugar, blood glucose concentration, and we get, it, we get the release of insulin. And the insulin tries to tell where that glucose to go get into the muscle because we're going to exercise here. The fear is that if you take carbohydrate within 60 minutes before exercise, it can result in hyperglycemia or high blood sugar. And then we get the release of insulin. The release of insulin then puts the glucose into the muscle, into the liver, and we get a drop in blood glucose because it's, it's trying to pull it back in the normal range. High blood glucose levels for extended period of time isn't good. So your body's trying to get rid of that out of the blood and put it to where it needs to be stored. But if we start exercising, we also have 
non-insulin-mediated uptake of glucose, which is that when we start stimulating the muscles, the muscles will take some of that glucose without the action of insulin. And this is when we get this thing called reactive or rebound hypoglycemia. So it's essentially a low blood sugar pre-exercise. Now, this is a real strange one because it does come with a number of symptoms. People do feel as if they're having a hypo. They do. They can feel faint. Sometimes they can feel a bit dizzy. It doesn't seem to actually impact performance. There is some research that it, that it may affect things like fat oxidation, and that might be something worth talking about later. But there's only two studies that have ever found that this reactive hypoglycemia reduces performance. The majority of the studies that have reported no change are actually an improvement in performance following pre-exercise carbohydrate. The additional thing to this is that this rebound hypoglycemia, especially in the early stages of exercise, don't really seem to offer any functional significance. And so this really suggests that there's no need to avoid carbohydrates in your before exercise. We know that we may get some symptoms from rebound hypoglycemia. That's not really a new finding. We may see changes in blood glucose. Again, that's totally normal. But if it doesn't actually change performance and it's mainly the symptoms, then what we need to do then is try to find a structure that achieves the goal that we want to achieve with our endurance performance while minimizing the perception of a change in performance. Big meal, very high carbohydrate meal, moderate protein, low to moderate fat, two to five hours before our event. And then somewhere probably in the region of 30 to 90 minutes before the event, we want something mainly carbohydrate, very easy to digest, and that'll be very individual to you. And then try and keep that consistent. There's no no reason to avoid carbohydrate feedings in the hour before exercise. Now, some athletes may develop some symptoms that might be similar to even true hypoglycemia, even though the actual symptoms aren't linked with a low blood sugar concentration, and it doesn't actually appear to improve or to affect performance. So the main thing that we really want is to try and minimize those symptoms, minimize the perception of those symptoms for the individual. And that could be things like having carbohydrate just before exercise, during the warm-up, or having low to moderate glycemic index carbohydrates. What about then when we actually start exercising? And we can go into different type, different things here, but there's a couple of important points that I think is worth covering. The first one is probably carbohydrate types. That's going to be related to the physiology that's going on underneath the surface. The way I want you to think about this is visualize your muscle as a house. You've got a front door and you have a back door. The carbohydrate glucose wants to go through the front door. And we can pump a lot of glucose through that front door, roughly a gram a minute. But sometimes we can't get enough people into that house. If it's a house party, it's absolutely booming. You want so many people in there, but we can't get more through the front door. So we slip them around the back. Now, glucose can't use the back door, but different types of carbohydrate can. And so we can get more carbohydrate into the muscle during exercise to try and improve performance, to try and keep performance consistent and so different types of carbohydrate we can put glucose through the front door some fructose through the back door and get everyone into that house or the muscle in our case now we can't just jump straight to that there is levels to this in terms of how much if we're talking about dosage we want to have roughly 30 grams for every hour that we intend to train train or perform so remember this relates to a race scenario 30 grams is a good starting point, and we'll come on to why this might be important. But 30 grams is often a good starting point, and we want 30 grams of mainly glucose-based carbohydrate. For me, I typically go for a liquid-based carbohydrate with my athletes. Again, we'll come on to come on to reasons why. But you don't have to. You can go for solid food as well. Then when we move up, we want to go to maybe 45 to 60 grams. Remember your muscle can only let in one gram of carbohydrate per minute, you know, or roughly that. And so we can't really push it any further beyond 60 grams. So 60 grams is sort of the upper limit of our glucose tolerance. Most of you probably don't need to go above 60 grams. There's probably no reason. You're not doing something that's long enough. You're not doing something that's intense enough that would warrant above 60 grams. But if you are someone who's at the elite level, 
if you're someone who's doing 12 to 20 hours of training per week, if you're doing a very extended session, you know, if you're doing three, four, five hour brick sessions, then you're probably going to, need to push it up a little bit higher. Now, you'll know yourself based on your own performance, based on fatigue, all of those different factors that come into the outcome that you're trying to achieve. But once we go on to that 60 grams, we usually need to switch the carbohydrate type. So we've maximized 60 grams of glucose, then we start building in fructose. Now fructose, depending on the individual, I will tend to do an increments of 10 grams. So you'll do 60 grams of carbohydrate, 10 grams of fructose, and then 60 grams of glucose, 20 grams of fructose, and do that until we get up to 60 grams of glucose, 30 grams of fructose. The reason why I take smaller increments with the fructose is because fructose is generally considered with gut discomfort. People do tend to get a number of symptoms with the intake of fructose, especially during exercise. We don't need to push it to 90. I think the highest that I've had someone recently doing a trail marathon is 60 grams of glucose and 15 grams of fructose. And that was enough to get us through the event. And we built that up over time. Now, I use mainly powder type carbohydrates for this, but you don't have to. You can use solid food as well. Which one should you use? Honestly, this really comes down to personal preference. There probably is going to be an argument that powdered carbohydrate mixed in with liquid, you have a little bit more control over everything. You've control over the concentrations. You've control over the dosages. You've control over the actual types of carbohydrate. But that doesn't say you can't use solid food. And when we start getting into two hour, three hour, four hour races, or training blocks, I tend to use a mixture of both. Again, this all has to be trialed in training. I'm not a big fan of gels. I do try and limit gels. Now, if you're an endurance athlete, you've probably experienced this before because certain gels work with some people. Other gels have a horrendous output. They're going to come out one hole. You're going to be in the toilet and it's going to come out one end. I don't want to know what end it comes out of, but a lot of people get issues with gels. It does tend to be very brand specific. So science and sport, tend to be very good I think with a lot of people just from my own anecdotal observations but certain ones will work with other people so don't let if gels is something that you find will be very useful to you don't be put off that one or two brands don't work with you find one that actually works well with your body because again it could be the types of carbohydrate they're used it could be the concentration that it's in it could be even the texture or consistency so don't be put off by that powdered is an option gels are an option and in solid foods but when it comes to the solid foods you want to have things that are number one portable again this was the issue that i had when it came to my lack of practical experience that i was just saying well just hit this number of carbohydrate and you're telling people oh a banana is great a cereal bar is great no one's carrying that around for 26 mile or even 13 mile and unless you're in part of a, an elite setup very few people are going to have people stop at different stages of the race to give you that and even logistically planning that out can be quite difficult. So things like Haribo, Percy Pigs, those jelly sugary based sweets that you can keep in your pocket, they can be very, very beneficial here. Back when I was an actual athlete, the thing then was jelly before you add the water to it, essentially, the cubes. And people would just take cubes of that and chew on it. The old school things like oranges in the dressing room of team based sports, bananas, chaffa cakes, they can all be fine. They wouldn't be my go-to fuel source, to be totally honest with you, but they can work, especially when we get into longer base endurance events. But there's no right or wrong way for this. It's whatever works best for your body. The other thing that's really interesting that's come into the endurance world is the idea of carbohydrate mouth rinsing. Mouth rinsing is the idea that you don't actually swallow any carbohydrate. You simply mix it around your mouth. And we're not really sure as to what's actually going on here. There's been a lot of really interesting studies around this in terms of why we think it works. But one of the big interesting things is that, well, one of the first things is that we thought that the carbohydrate, that the sweetness, that the different, the different tastes and textures stimulated parts of the brain to say that there's going to be carbohydrate coming into the body so we can actually increase energy. But no carbohydrate is going into the body because we're not swallowing it. And then we've done some interesting studies on well, is it the sweetness? So let's compare rinsing some form of solution around your mouth 
one containing carbohydrate, one containing zero carbohydrate, but being loaded with artificial sweeteners. So we're still getting sweetness without the actual fuel. And there does seem to be a difference. There seems to be something that's recognizing that even though the sweetness may be there, the carbs aren't, and we don't get the same response. Now with carbohydrate mouth rinsing, it's a bit strange in the fact that when you still push exercise duration above one hour, it seems to be better to just simply take on carbohydrates. But mouth rinsing seems to be beneficial for when exercise is less than an hour, so between 30 and, and 60 minutes there does tend to have some form of beneficial effect there but again it's not something that i've ever really felt the need to do you know there's there's no real reason as to why i would think that mouth rinsing is more beneficial than actually taking on carbohydrate and within events that that last less than 60 minutes it's unlikely the glucose availability is going to be the limiting factor of performance unless you're going into unless you're going into an endurance session on low carbohydrate which could happen so i don't think we'll get into it in this episode but there's an idea of training for the work required or carbohydrate periodization where you're actually structuring your nutrition around your training intensity so that for example a zone two session you'll do on low carbohydrate because you're trying to maximize the adaptation of fat to carbohydrate burning and so for a session like that where it's zone 2 related but it's very low carbohydrate going into it maybe mouth rinsing may have a place there i mean it's not something that i would typically use but i could see the reason as to why we would do that because rinsing the mouth of carbohydrate may stimulate a part of the brain that allows us to push on performance which means that we may have to hit certain thresholds certain heart rate zones whatever the work rate is in order to cause the specific adaptation that we're trying to achieve. So it may have some use there, but it's not something that I've ever really used with a lot of clients, and it hasn't seemed to hell, you know, to hold any of those ones back. So that's the idea of carbohydrate during exercise, and there is a lot there to, to take in. The last two sections that I want to really focus on when it comes to nutrition is, number one, the idea of gut comfort. Depending on where you look, depending on who you ask, gastrointestinal problems is a big area in endurance. The statistics vary, but we're talking up to 95% of people will experience some form of GI complaint during exercise, especially during long distance events, triathlons, or even athletes involved in other types of strenuous, long lasting exercise. Other people have said that it can be severe distress in up to 32% of people. Now, these symptoms can vary. Everyone seems to be individual here, but we're talking about dizziness, nausea, any stomach or intestinal cramps, vomiting, diarrhea. And there does seem to be a very strong link between nutritional practices and our GI distress. And we all know this, you know, how many times have you had a dodgy meal and half an hour, two hours later, your stomach is in absolute bits? Or you have something and you bloat really badly like really really tender painful bloating so it is you know we know that there is an issue there and then when you add exercise on top of that we're just asking for for trouble some of the milder symptoms may not even affect performance sometimes we can get away with it but some of the symptoms can be very serious and will not only affect performance but can be health threatening so let me give you an example. Marathon runners, long distance triathletes, they could occasionally have blood loss in their poop when it comes to follow, you know, the hours following their event. Other ones, we can have surface changes to our, to our GI tract during triathlons, marathons, which suggests that there could be sort of sort of restriction in blood flow over GI tract. Increased permeability, some damage to the gut, impaired gut function, a lot of these can happen. Now, despite the high prevalence of symptoms, mild or severe, a lot of them are still not really well understood. And it probably is one of the biggest areas at the minute that people are researching. What we do know, though, 
And what's really beneficial is that the gut is essentially a muscle and it does seem to be able to be trained. Now, the best evidence of this is competitive eaters. Go onto YouTube, put in competitive eating, put in 15, 20,000 calorie challenges. There's a guy, Eric the Electric, who literally does the most insane calorie challenges. Not something you want to do, not something even to be glorified, but when you can put away 20, 30, 40,000 calories in a very short period of time, it gives us the idea that the stomach and the gut is trainable. And that means that we can take this and if, if we do have symptoms, and we know it's mostly related to nutrition, especially pre and during exercise, then we can train that to be tolerable. We can train that so your body can adapt to that food food stress. And then just like our training, that we increase our training load, our training volume, our training duration over the course of a 12 or 16 week endurance block, we should be able to do the same with our gut. Because this is the issue, and this is why I said earlier, but we want to start at around 30 grams of carbohydrate during exercise for every hour, and then gradually increase it to 45, then 60, and then slowly add in the fructose on top of that. Because we have tolerance levels. We can't just, if I said to you, go out and run a marathon without doing any training, your body's going to probably break down. In the same way, if I said to you, you've never used gels before, go and take three gels on your next long run. You're probably going to end up with stomach cramps. You're going to end up in the toilet. That's not what we want. So we have to be able to allow the body to adapt over time. So training the gut is something worth highlighting. The last one then is about supplements. And I'm not really going to delve into the supplements here, to be totally honest with you. It's just the two main supplements that people tend to ask for. So we'll delve into those. The first was, is there any use for creatine? in endurance activities and to be totally honest there's no evidence whatsoever certainly when it comes to performance side of things there was even a a review paper published over the last month that looked into all of the the recent studies into endurance performance and creatine use and there was pretty much no difference when it came to endurance performance now within any sort of endurance program there should be some strength and conditioning. There should be some high intensity intervals. And so you could make an argument that creatine may not improve your actual performance when it comes to race day, but it might increase your capacity to hit those sessions with the intensity or slightly higher intensity than you could without it. And so if we can do that, we can cause an adaptation over time that would lead to better performances. Now, I haven't got stuck into the literature around creatine and endurance performance recently, but I'm not sure if there's any any long-term study to look at the effect of creatine over multiple training blocks to see if that would be the case. I would suspect that just from research design and my own background within research, compliance is going to be a hard thing to monitor it's also going to be hard that is adherence an issue how do we get people to buy into a study long term how do we control all the variables that we need to when it comes to research design so i suspect that there's no study out there but i can certainly see some sort of viable reason as to why that might work but again this is just me trying to give you objective thought and my own sort of i guess subjective experience have I ever give creatine to endurance athletes? No. Just the evidence isn't there for it for performance, but I could see a reason as to why it might work. So I'll leave that one up to your own capital hands, but it's not something that I would ever recommend for solely endurance-based athletes. The last one is bicarbonate. Bicarbonate of soda. Let me tell you about bicarbonate of soda sodium bicarbonate bicarbonate sodium it's the original beta aniline you know slightly different but essentially what we're looking at is the same thing now bicarbonate sodium let me tell you a story one of my very good friends scott was doing his his phd and it was all around bone health it was looking at changes around bone metabolism especially during exercise and he decided 
there was a very very good viable reason for it that we'll not jump into but sodium bicarbonate may help here because it, it changes pH within the body and so he thought this is a great study me being the good friend that I was and I am decided to say yeah no problem I'll come and do your study now anyone who's tried bicarbonate sodium will know that there's a big warning around it that it may cause some GI problems and I was I was late in the Scott study but he said 40 minutes later half an hour 40 minutes after you consume this you'll be on the toilet and I thought, I've got a strong stomach. This will be fine. He gave me quite a large dose of sodium bicarbonate. I said, great. Sat around for 40 minutes. And I was like, listen, I'm good to go here. Like, I don't feel anything. My stomach is great. Let's get on the bike. Let's do a warm-up. Hooked me all up. Put a essentially an IV line into my arm so we could take blood during exercise. And literally about 10 minutes later, I was like, this is going to run down my leg. I need to go here. <laughs> now, he thought this was hilarious. He was laughing his head off. But I sprinted to the toilet. And the bathroom that I the bathroom that I was using was one of those sensor-activated toilets where, you know, when you go in, the light comes on and when there's no movement, it turns off. I was in there that long that the light turned off. And I was sitting there going, I can't get up here. And when someone comes in, they're just going to hear me on the toilet and they're going to be like, why are you sitting in the dark? <laughs> it was absolutely horrendous. But that tells you the side effects of bicarbonate. It is something that works. It is definitely something that is beneficial, but the downsides usually outweigh the performance benefits. And we have tried for years and years to find some form of dosing strategy that's beneficial and we still really haven't got it nailed down so it's a very difficult one it's not one that i would typically recommend for those reasons because the very first time that that happens to an athlete they're never going to want to take it again that's that's what we're dealing with and so it's not something that i would particularly recommend to an athlete it is something that you can experiment with yourself again what i would say is start really low with the dosages and, and gradually build yourself up to what the recommended dose is and see if you can actually tolerate it again there could be an adaptation here you might actually be able to train your tolerance so you can push that up and see really good performance benefits and at the end of the day sodium bicarbonate is very very cheap it's very easy accessible you can get it in your your local tesco's or sainsbury's i'm going to leave the nutrition there and I want to jump into some training considerations. If you do have any questions on the nutrition, please feel free to fire me a message, fire me a question. But I do want to give you a good, I guess, overview of complete performance when it comes to marathon prep or just endurance prep in general. I won't spend as much time on training prep work or miscellaneous, but I want to give you some thoughts. When it comes to training, the very first thing is actually give yourself enough time time is going to be the biggest thing when you have an event in mind are we giving ourselves eight weeks if you're not a, a typical endurance runner if you're not doing even for example say you want to run a half marathon and you run 5k's 10k's quite regularly then you can maybe get away with doing an eight week or 12 week prep but if you've never done even a 10k before 12 weeks might not be enough to do 10k you might need more time now i'm working with uh, a girl at the minute not from an an athlete background wanted to improve aesthetics wanted to improve how she looks but then was bitten by the bug wanted to do 5k done the 5k wanted to do the 10k smashed the 10k and now she's like josh there's a marathon in october i want to do it now, I'm not saying you need to have eight, nine months to prep for a half marathon, but that's plenty of time. That allows us to kneel down the nutrition, kneel down the training, have plenty of prep time, go through periods where we can increase and decrease volume, that we can take breaks in our training. She can go and socialize without having this pressure on her to flip, I can't miss a single session here. And so it's very, very good in that sense. So the first thing is give yourself enough time 
be conservative don't go online and be like marathon training plan because it's going to come up and give you a 12 week plan and just because it says it in paper doesn't mean you'll actually be able to do it and doesn't mean that you won't pick up a niggle or injury we need time for adaptation we need time for your body to get used to the distances the intensity the volume that you're doing so that we're actually capable and robust enough to do the distance that doesn't matter if it's 5k it doesn't matter if it's a marathon doesn't matter if it's an ultra marathon or 100 100 mile race we need to give ourselves sufficient time and generally the longer the distance the longer the time that you need to give in the run-up to it especially if you're coming from a background that maybe you've never done a marathon before maybe you're a, a half marathon person and you're deciding i'm going to jump up to a full marathon you can get away with eight to 12 week preps in that scenario but i would typically like to see even 16 20 weeks because it does give us a lot more flexibility the second point is have a plan and this is where you know there are a lot of good online plans out there there's a lot of good templates out there working with someone i think it's always really beneficial because someone who's been through that journey before or someone who's coached that journey before they know what to expect they know what's going to come up they know the potential of niggles and injuries and how to manage them they know how much we can push on and especially if maybe you're you're a female there's a whole host of other factors that come into play which is worth considering that's not something we can jump into here but it becomes slightly more complex in, in those situations so having a plan working with someone but also the other side is that given give yourself flexibility because we might have to change the plan and that's totally fine the destination is still the same we still have a race that we want to run but it might mean that if life happens that we have to adapt the training plan and that's okay and i guess that that leads me on to my my next point which is i'm a big fan of energy system training and what i mean by this is that when you break down a a training plan to its core components especially in an endurance based program you're going to either have aerobic or anaerobic activities so for example let's take a typical marathon program you're going to have a long run your long run should be a zone two intensity you should be able to maintain if me and you run together you should be able to have a full conversation with me without (sighs) we don't want that that gasp and breath you should be able to have a conversation with me you should be able to say 15 to 20 words without having to stop that's the intensity that we want for your long run but then you also might have an interval session in there which will typically be a speed based session you might also have a tempo based session and then you might have a hill based session or or even a cross trainer session but the idea is here is when you strip those back it's still a lactic session which will be your interval work your hill work tempo work will tend to be extended periods at a certain intensity then backing off for recovery and going up again and then you'll have your long endurance based stuff which will be aerobic work that's generally breaking into energy systems now what that means is that in periods where maybe you can't get for a run you can't get out in the roads that we don't have to do that we can still train the energy system so with some of my clients it might be okay we want to do a marathon but we understand that our bodies maybe not strong enough to push up on the miles yet we know that we might get niggles okay well let's manage the load that comes through the body we've got a, a lot of load that's going through the ankles and knees the hips so we can't run three four five days a week so we might do 40 minutes 50 minutes 60 minutes zone two work on a cross trainer so we're still actually trying to cause an adaptation with the aerobic system but then maybe later on in the week we'll go out and do an interval session or a grass session or a long run or a tempo run on the roads because again we still need to cause some form of adaptation on the surface that we're actually going to be competing on and so it's not just as simple as having this plan and it's not just as simple as we'll follow this and it'll be perfect we have to be flexible we have to allow time for adaptation and fundamentally we're training energy systems and then there are some 
sport-specific considerations that will be important. You know, you're not going to get better at cycling without cycling. You're not going to get better at swimming without swimming. So we have to be in the water if we want to be better at that. We have to be on the roads. We have to be on the trails. We have to be on the hills if we want to get better at that. But we also can have the flexibility that if we can't get out in those, we can still get a really good session in. And I guess that ties into the idea of low impact and high impact training. As I said, there's a high percentage of people within the first 12 weeks who will experience some form of lower leg, lower body, niggle or injury. And that is because we maybe went from doing nothing to now we're doing a lot of impact through the lower body. Whether that's the arches of your feet, whether that's your ankles, whether it's shin splints, whether it's a calf strain, whether it's knee pain, hip pain, tightness around the IT band and there's a lot of niggles that we can pick up and it usually comes down to the load and the impact that we're putting through the lower body. We're just not conditioned. We don't have the capacity for it. So don't be afraid to trial out those things. It's not going to impact your ability to run or perform in whatever discipline that you're looking at. One of the questions that someone had was with regards to VO2 max versus heart rate zone. So people might be aware of what we're talking about here but to give you a quick rundown a vo2 max to find out our vo2 max which is essentially the maximum amount of oxygen that we can take in and utilize we generally have to get this calculated through some form of lab test now the typical way you do it is you either get someone on a treadmill or a bike and you incrementally increase intensity until the person can no longer keep going and that gives us an output or a figure of their VO2 max. And this will be, this, it'll have to be done in a lab because it'll have to analyze your gas that you're exchanging during exercise. The problem with that is that not a lot of people have access to that. We can do it based off you know, indirect calculations and equations, but it's still not totally accurate. But we do have quite a tight correlation between VO2 max and heart rate which is why within endurance circles, you'll see heart rate zones being used quite often. So which one's best to actually use? If we were want to be super accurate, VO2 max would obviously be really beneficial to have, but that will require you booking into a lab, doing a test, finding out your zones, but at the end of the day, you'll still have those correlated with heart rates. If you do the test right, sometimes people will put in a lactate curve as well, and that will, that will tie with your heart rate and tie with intensities. So VO2 max can be useful, but unless we're in a lab setup every day, it's hard to train directly at a percentage of your VO2 max. And so the better way to probably do it is your heart rate zones. So breaking in through heart rate zone one, two, three, four, etc because those heart rate zones will generally correlate with a certain percentage of your, your VO2 max anyway. And so that's probably a better way to do it. It's probably a more practical way to do it. It's the way that I prefer to do it. The problem with heart rate training zones is that when you tell someone to do a zone two, it sounds silly, but they're usually not fit enough for it because people go out for a run and their heart rate spikes. Even though they might think, I'm taking this easy, their heart rate spikes into zone three, zone four very quickly. Now you might think you're fit, but that shows that you're not aerobically fit because you can't maintain this in zone two. And it takes time for this to adapt. It takes patience. It takes some humility as well because it, sometimes it can feel literally like I'm literally going to be walking here. But that's what we want. We want to be we want to be adapting the right system. The last point of the whole training thing is do the hard stuff. And this goes for whatever it is. You know, it's easy to cut corners and sandbag. A lot of people just don't want to spend time on the trails. They don't want to spend time on the mountains. They don't want to do the hills. And that goes for even runners on the road as well. Everyone wants to go out for a nice wee flat run. And that's great because if you're on Strava, you're wanting to become the local legend. You're wanting to hit a new section, PB. You're wanting to get a wee medal. But at the end of the day, that's not helping your actual training. Because when you come to a race and you come to a hill, you're like, I'm going to die here. We have to train these things. We have to do the hard stuff. And the more time you spend doing it, the better we're going to get at it. So don't be slacking on the hard stuff. Don't be avoiding it. If you want to get better at a certain part, the stuff that you're weak at is probably the things that you've been avoiding. So let's jump into them. 
that's nutrition covered, that's training covered. I just want to jump into a little bit of prep work. Strength and conditioning, just a quick word on it. Any decent endurance program is going to have a degree of strength and conditioning. Now, strength and conditioning isn't basing you into the ground. It's not destroying your body. It's not these leg days that you see all over social media. You're an endurance athlete. You're not a powerlifter. You're not a bodybuilder. You're an endurance athlete. And so your strength and conditioning should complement what you're trying to achieve in your sport. What is the role of strength and conditioning in here? Strength and conditioning for me is building a robust body. So we have strong tendons and ligaments. So we have strong muscles. So we have that tissue resilience there. And someone who's used to programming for that is going to be an absolute godsend here. Because so often people come to me and say, Josh, I'm training for a marathon, training for a half marathon or a 10K, but I also go to a PT two times a week. And I say, well, what do you do with that PT? Oh, well, he just takes me through these beast and lower body days and we do hip thrusts for five sets and then we do leg press and we do squats and we do leg curls and RDLs and we do all these sets and intensity and then it's, well, how does your run feel? Oh, my legs are pulled off me. Like, I just feel so dead. I feel like I'm carrying lead in my legs. It's like, yeah, because your PT's an idiot. Like, they just want to beast you because they want to post you all over their social media and say, look how great my client looks. And then they don't, they don't care about your performance. Their strength and conditioning should be there to complement our performance, not hinder it. The next point on from that is then, obviously, strength and conditioning, or if you want to look at it separately, we need to have some prehab or injury prevention work. We know the common injuries of running, but are we doing specific things, specific work to prep for that? I give a lot of my clients foot, ankle and knee conditioning drills. This is outside of their strength and conditioning. This is outside of their running. It could be stuff they're doing when they're watching TV. It could be stuff they could use as a, as a warm-up or cool-down. But it's prep work on their actual, the muscles and, and tendons and ligaments in their feet, ankles, knees. Are we doing that? Because the forces and the amount of time that you're spending on the lower body Strength and conditioning running is only part of the puzzle. You can't run if you're injured. You can't train if you're injured. So how do we prevent that? Again, we're trying to be we're trying to be proactive here instead of reacting to an actual injury. Doesn't mean injuries won't happen, but at least we know we have confidence going into it that we're trying to do everything we can not to get injured. So what what are your prehab or injury prevention strategies? The last point within sort of prep work is what I call nutrition replication. So I've I've talked a lot here about nutrition. We've looked at different topics, some you may be familiar with, some you may not be familiar with. And I don't even think we've scratched the surface of each of those topics. But it's a point that I that I want to drive home at the very start is if you need to replicate all of this in training. And again, don't take what I've said if you're sitting there with a notepad and book and you're taking all these points in nutrition, don't think you're going to do that next week or next month. It's going to take time to build this in. You have to have a very good balanced diet first, very good foundations, and then you can start building this stuff on. You can start building the correct amount of carbohydrates. Then you can start building, well, how do I time these across the day? And then it's how do I taking carbs during exercise and there's going to be a degree of training in the gut when it comes to that and then once you've all that done then we can start looking at the sexy stuff like the supplements like carbohydrate periodization and carbohydrate and fat oxidation then we can start looking at that stuff but it takes time number one for you to actually implement it but it takes time to actually replicate it enough times in training that you're confident that you can do it in a race and this is why it comes back to the other point of giving ourselves sufficient time i know i was saying that in reference to training but sufficient time also allows us to trial our nutritional strategies throughout that 16 20 week block so that's on the prep work the miscellaneous stuff just really three points if you've ever been to a marathon you'll undoubtedly have seen 
people wearing white t-shirts with blood on their nipples. <laughs> Chaffing is a real thing. So, for me, coming from a bodybuilding background, the inside of my legs chaff really, really bad. And when I was doing the trail marathon, someone threw me literally a tub of Vaseline and just said, rub that in the inside of your legs. And it helped. They really did. So things like, depending on your clothing, you might need to put plasters over your nipples because running for 13, 26 mile, 100 mile, when they, that clothes runs and you get sweaty and it gets moist, it is common to see people run with blood on their t-shirt from that. Chaffing on the inside of, of your legs, it's likely that you'll come across this even just in your actual training. So you'll probably know that that's going to be an issue going into a race. So it's again, trialing some things, Vaseline, long, uncomfortable underwear, possibly leggings, see what works for you. It all does make a difference. They're small points, which is why I'm saying they're, they're miscellaneous, but if you've put so much time and effort into your nutrition and your training, and then you throw on a top and you get 70 at nine mile in and it starts, the top starts rubbing against your nipples and becomes sore and irritable and bleeding, then that's going to play a factor in just even your mental capacity. We can have the best nutrition plan in the world and training plan, but we also need to have our mind in the right place. And if your mind's focusing on, my nipples are red raw here, <laughs> your your mind's not going to be focused on the race. Plaster them bad boys up, get the Vaseline in between the legs if you need to. Nasal breathing was a question someone asked, what's the importance of nasal breathing? For anyone who doesn't know, it's breathing through the nose. There does seem to be a difference between nasal breathing and mouth breathing. Nasal breathing seems to release more nitric oxide. It releases um, nitric oxide into the blood, helps widen our blood vessels. And the theory is that we can get more blood to the work of muscles, to the lungs, X, Y, and Z. The problem I have with nasal breathing is that it doesn't matter how good you are at nasal breathing, you're limited by just the actual, your ability to take as much air as possible through the nose. It's a very, very small cavity. Your mouth is very, very big. So at some stage, especially in a race, when you have to push on, you're going to have to go through the mouth. You're going to have to mouth breathe. And this sounds, this is why I'm not really delving into this because it sounds so silly of telling people, breathe through your nose or breathe through your mouth. Generally, my recommendation is, if we can, it's good to be consciously breathing through the nose. If we can do even some zone two work, breathing through the nose, that'll give you a good indication of intensity. But at some stage, you're going to have to breathe through your mouth. Like There's no exceptions. You, you, you can't do zone three, zone four, zone five work, breathing through your nose. Yes, in theory, it sounds good. It sounds like we're getting a lot of benefits from it, but it's limited. It's limited by intensity. But it might be good to add some stuff in, you know, within your training. And that could be during your warm-ups, could be during your prehab or injury prevention stuff. And then switch to mouth breathing when you feel as if I'm struggling to get her in here. And I think that's a fairly common sense, straightforward approach. The last topic to round this all off, and I want to cover this because someone had specifically asked for it. I'm going to answer this question quite bluntly, but then I'm going to go into a more detailed view. If you have a specific outcome you want to achieve, in other words, and, and this isn't endurance, this goes to every sport. If you want to be an endurance athlete, then be an endurance athlete. If you want to be a footballer, a rugby player, a Gaelic player, then be those things. But don't try and be an endurance athlete or a footballer or a hockey player and a crossfitter. Because you're not using one of those to complement the other. Just from knowing what the crossfit environment is like, you're not using that training to complement. You're going into a, a, a session and if it's an AMRAP, if it's uh, every minute on the minute, if it's a chipper, whatever it is, you're always trying to push yourself. You're always trying to be competitive. It's not the correct training. and It's likely going to lead, or maybe not likely it is, but there's a high risk involved that you will, number one, get injured. You'll pick up niggles. And it's just not beneficial for your actual sport. There's a more optimal and more helpful way to train for your sport. I guess the big thing here comes down to is what's your actual goal? Do you want to run a certain time in your marathon? Do you want to hit a PB? If so, then your training should complement that. For me at the minute, my goal is just to be fit, be healthy, move well, live long. That's it. 
So my training very much is I'll go out and do a run once or twice a week. I'll do three weight training sessions a week. Probably do some conditioning at the end of those sessions. I'll spend a lot of time on mobility and flexibility type work and prehab work. I'm not trying to go out and smash a marathon. I'm not trying to go out and smash a 10k or 5k time. And same way for you, if you want to be, if you want to go to a CrossFit box and really enjoy it, have fun, socialise, push on really hard, and you're not really too concerned about, oh, I want to go out here and hit a new PB in my 13 miler, then that's fine. That's totally okay. But if you actually want to take one of those seriously, then make that the priority. Go and push hard at one of them and just make sure that the other complements it because you can't push both on at the same time. And this isn't a, a dig at CrossFit because I, I love that side of training, but it's just when you have athletes specifically, you know, again, someone like myself who's not really involved in competitive sport anymore, but especially if you're on a team, if you're on a team, you're on a football team or a rugby team, or even if you're just an individual athlete and you're you're sort of you sort of are a runner for example or a cyclist or a triathlete and you're going and doing crossfit and then complaining that your running's not getting better your sport's not getting better or um you're getting injured because of your crossfit then that's on you (laughs) it sounds harsh but we're either an athlete or we're not and if we're an athlete then we need to do things to complement that that'll leave some food for thought but this has been enjoyable episode there's been a lot of content here this will be a, a multiple listen podcast i would imagine because there are so many sections so many topics and if there is topics here that we want to spend more time on please just drop me a message if it is the nutrition if it's you know carbohydrate periodization if it's training the gut delving into carbohydrate during exercise or vo2 max versus heart rate zones if it is strength and conditioning let me know and i can either record an episode or i can get a guest who specializes in these these areas and we can talk through it together but hopefully you've got plenty of value from this this has been dr josh williamson on the complete performance podcast thanks very much for tuning in and i will catch you in the next one